Welcome to another episode of True Crimes and Weird Times. This is Kim. This is Ashley. And this week I'm going to be telling you about Robin Lewis Slaughter, a man who left for a quick trip to the convenience store down the road and never returned. And I'll be talking about the legendary skinwalkers and who they are, how to become one, and what to do if you cross paths with one. Robin Lewis Slaughter was born November 23, 1956, to Dorothy and William Slaughter in Owensboro, Kentucky. He didn't drive, and he was a homebody who enjoyed listening to music, playing sports, you know, like normal teenager stuff. And in July 1977, he started a job at Owensboro Sanitation Department, where he spent 16 years working along with his older brother, Rudd Slaughter, where, according to an article in the Messenger Inquirer, he was a reliable, easygoing, and non-confrontational worker. In 1991, Robin married his childhood friend, Lucinda, after what his family considered to be a very rushed relationship. Lucinda and Robin had gone on a few dates 12 years earlier when she was 15 and Robin was 23, but things kind of fizzled out until 1990 when Lucinda was in a car accident. See, Robin and Lucinda went to church together, so when her car accident led to her being hospitalized for two months, Robin would come and visit her. Now, Lucinda says that that is when she noticed that Robin was a hard worker and that he would be a great provider and father to her two daughters, who were one and two years old. That sounds sweet. It sounds sweet, (laughs) but not everyone felt that way. See, Robin's family felt like the marriage was sudden and unexpected. And according to his mother and brother, he actually changed after the wedding. He stopped going anywhere other than work and church. He visited less often, and he stopped coming to play sports. He didn't listen to music as much. Yeah, that's not good. Like, he just kind of got so sucked into his family life that he forgot about everything else. Yeah. And it also sounds like they had a pretty good reason to feel like he was being taken advantage of. Because up until the point that he got married at 34 years old, Robin still lived at home with his mother, who had power of attorney over his finances. Oh. And according to an article from The Messenger, Robin's sister Kitty Board said he was a sweet and lovable person, but he needed looking after. So no one ever comes Hmm. right out and says he has some sort of disability, but it definitely gives that impression. Yeah, it gives the vibe. But what if it was just... Like, super controlling parents. I mean, that's possible. He also didn't drive, though. And, I mean, he never tried Mm. to drive after he got married. But, I mean, also he got married and either his wife started taking care of him or he was perfectly capable by then. I don't really know. Okay. Because, like I said, they kind of allude to it, but no one actually comes out and says he was special needs. He had a disability. Even if it was just a learning disability. We don't know. Okay. See, this this case was not widely reported on. There's almost no information about it out there. So it's really hard to kind of get the full story here. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, though, Robin was a great father to his stepchildren, and the girls loved him. And he was also a good husband to Lucinda. Lucinda claims to have reconciled with Robin's mother in the years following his disappearance. Okay. But that's according to her. I never actually mm-hmm. found any articles where the mom says that they get along mm-hmm. now. Okay. On November 14th, 1993, around 9 p.m., Robin told his wife he was going to walk down to the convenience store called Franny's Food Mart. It was a trip he made fairly often and was only about a 15-minute walk from their home because it was only about six blocks away. Mm. 
Robin told Lucinda he would be home in 40, 45 minutes, put on a gray and blue sweater, and headed out. Except Robin never actually made it to the store. Surveillance cameras in the store show that Robin never came in. The clerk on duty said she never saw him that night. And now she would remember because Robin was a regular there. She knew him. Okay. She said he wasn't really the type to stay and chat with her. But, you know, he was in there enough that she she could identify him. Now, there was a teenage boy who was friends with Robin who says that he talked to him in the parking lot of the store. But later when questioned by the police, he changed his story to say he only actually saw him, but he didn't really talk to him. So I don't know if this was like a teenager who's like, hey, I can be involved in this investigation. Let me jump in. But then kind of got scared maybe when they actually questioned him Mm -hmm. or maybe he misremembered. I don't really know. But I do know Robin never returned home either. The next morning, around 9 or 9.30, Lucinda knocked on Kitty's door, which Kitty is Robin's sister, to ask if she had seen Robin. Okay, so she waited an entire night. Looking for him? For looking for him when he said it was only going to be like a 45 minute. Yeah, that kind of blows my mind too. Because if my husband says, hey, I'll be back in an hour, if he's not back within two hours, I'm looking for him. Yeah, I'm blowing up his phone. Yeah. Yeah. So to wait until 9 a.m. the next day. That's very odd. When it was just a quick little trip down to the store. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe she couldn't leave because the kids were sleeping. But yeah, anyway, she asked Kitty if she's seen Robin. And she says no and asked her what's wrong. Lucinda insists that it's nothing. She's like, oh, it's, you know, no, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. It's fine. It's fine. Uh-huh. And she leaves. Well, Kitty says that Robin had to be at work at 7 a.m. And she knew that. He'd had this job for 16 years. Mm -hmm. And he'd never missed a day's work the whole time. Oh. So for it to be 9.30 in the morning and Robin isn't at work and no one knows where he is, she said she just got that sinking feeling in her gut that something was wrong. Yeah. After checking at Kitty's house, Lucinda goes to the police and reports her husband missing. Now, the family claimed that Robin had no reason to leave his life behind. He had no enemies. He didn't have any problems in his marriage. He loved his stepdaughters. They didn't have any financial problems. Like, there was nothing bad happening to him. Everything was just running smoothly. So don't forget, though, he couldn't drive either. And the closest bus terminal was three miles from his house. So that would have been a pretty long walk. Three miles is not a quick jog down the street. Yeah. So he would have really had to put some effort and planning into this whole runoff forever thing. But police can't see any reason why he would have left on his own. And they see no indication of any kind of crime taking place either, though. Like, they really can't find anything. Now, here is where things get infuriating. So, like I said, there is very little coverage of this case. I mean, like... A few articles from a local paper at the time and some articles in three to four other news sources later. And that is it. Huh. Now, from what I can tell from these articles, police post his information to the National Crime Information Center. They check his social security number to make sure he didn't run off and start a new life somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they did a few witness interviews. You know, the, the clerk, yeah. the teenager in the parking lot. And they interviewed Lucinda a couple times. And then that's it. No searches. 
no evidence collected, huh. nothing for nine years. Nine years? Nine years. They just let it drop. Was it closed? Just it left was open? Not, it was just left okay. open. The police were not actively investigating. They were doing nothing. Huh. Now, in 2002, police get a search warrant for Lucinda's home. Nine years after he disappeared. What could there be? Now, she had since remarried, but she did still own the same house, which she shared with Robin, because she actually did give police permission to search. Like, she said, okay, uh-huh. fine, you can come in and do this. Well, yeah, I would assume all the evidence would be gone by then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nine years later, I'd feel pretty confident, too, if I had done something, uh-huh. I guess. Now, police claim that they got the search warrant at this time because there were rumors circulating that Lucinda is the one who got rid of her husband. Oh, and I guess they got enough pushback from the community that they were like, okay, we have to do something. Yeah. They also supposedly learned Lucinda had taken out a large life insurance policy on her husband mm-hmm. shortly before he disappeared. Imagine that. But Lucinda denies this. And I couldn't actually find a definite answer on who was right or not. Although I tend to believe the police would not make this up. Yeah. But then again, they've done such a stand-up job so far on this case. <laughs> That it's hard to really know which one of them is telling the truth Fair here. So when police search the property, they take several items from the home, including a closet door. The entire door. The entire door. Okay. They do this after they spray the house with luminol mm-hmm. to look for blood. And I guess they found some on the door. Huh. They also bring in cadaver dogs who do hit on a spot in the yard. Police spend a couple of days digging it up. They end up with a six foot by 10 foot hole along the back fence and a smaller three foot by three foot hole in the center of the backyard. Uh huh. But they ultimately don't find anything in either one of them. Lucinda's mother also lived next door to her and they bring the dogs into her yard, but they don't find anything there either. Okay. Lucinda is not happy about any of this. She actually goes public and claims the police are harassing her. She says they should have done all this years ago. I mean, she's not wrong. Right, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's a good point. And that they're just chasing rumors at this point. Now, police come back and say, well, we have a duty to follow all our leads. And, you know, sometimes that's done to clear people rather than catch them. Mm -hmm. So I guess he's kind of being like, Hey, lady, look, we're clearing your name. We're not trying to arrest you. She is not buying any of this, though. Lucinda thinks that the police are just out to get her. Mm -hmm. And she claims that a detective attempted to take a large black bag into the home before they searched. Oh. But refused to tell her what was in it. So she starts speculating that they are planting evidence (laughs) in her home. But wouldn't they have found that evidence? They would have. <laughs> if they I would were think, planting it. Yeah. Like if you planted it there, like how do you overlook the evidence that you planted? <laughs> I feel like that's a pretty big gap there. Yeah. Because ultimately they didn't find anything. The police end up completely ruling out Lucinda and announce that they found no evidence that a crime was committed in the house and that the case is still a cold case. Wow. Now, this is just some interesting stuff that I felt was related (laughs) but in reality it could be absolutely two separate issues nothing to do with robin whatsoever i just thought it speaks to you know some character oh back in 2007 lucinda and her husband john calhoun 
were charged with receiving stolen property and tampering with physical evidence after the police found money in their home that was stolen from a South Central bank. Now, they didn't rob the bank themselves. Lucinda was accused of orchestrating it with her lady lover, Tracy Crockett. What? But they were found guilty of abetting bank robbery, giving false statements, and a few other lesser charges Mm. of obstructing justice and stuff like that. Yeah. And Lucinda was sentenced to 78 months in prison. Oh, that's not too long. So essentially, (laughs) here's what happened. Lucinda went to church with this lady. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And eventually they start dating. I guess. uh, Hooking up. Hooking up. (laughs) And she manipulates this much younger woman into robbing a bank for her. That's insane. Now, look, they mentioned the life insurance policy. Mm Mm-hmm. And now she's getting someone to rob a bank for her. Right. And her husband, I guess, just went along with it. I mean, he was charged, too, which means he was in on it. Yeah, he knew about it. So, I mean, yeah. I guess. But how in love with someone do you have to be to be like, yeah, I'll rob that bank for you. Yeah, let's do it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't. (laughs) Which she is out of jail at this point. It's, she served her time. She's out. And like I said, could be completely unrelated. Just, you know, we'll hit on that some more in a second. (laughs) So why didn't the police do more, though? That's my major takeaway from this case. And I mean, according to a write-up by a Redditor on the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit, which they did a great write-up, by the way. Uh, Anybody who wants to learn more about the case, you can go read it. They do sources. It's great. According to that write-up, the police chief of 40 years had retired in 1992, which was the year before Robin went missing. Mm -hmm. They had also recently hired a lot of new, inexperienced officers So that could be one reason why the police really dropped the ball in this case and why they didn't really put that much effort into it because these cops didn't really know what they were doing yet. And they didn't have a solid leader to teach them, this is how we do things. Mm -hmm. But I mean, is that really an excuse? I wouldn't say so. And then there's also the factor we have to consider is the fact that it was the early 90s Mm -hmm. it was in the south it was in kentucky Mm -hmm. and robin lewis slaughter was black there it is so his case was probably just real low on their priority list yeah and sadly that happens now another thing that really kind of bugs me is lucinda (laughs) yeah so like i said she can take a lover (laughs) and convince her to rob a bank for her mm-hmm. a lover that she met at church at no church, less yeah who's to say she was incapable of getting someone to get rid of her husband for her yeah not to mention it does kind of seem like she was using robin you know like she needed yeah. a father for her girls she needed a provider she needed yep. someone to take care of her these are literally the reasons she listed for marrying him yep. so especially if he did have some sort of mental disability yeah, but that would be fairly easy. Right. She could just have been like, you know, this is an easy target. I could marry him and get yep. what I need. And then what happens when one day she decides that this is boring? She doesn't want this anymore. Yep. She wants to do something else. Or she's found someone else. Right. I mean, you don't... <sighs> to me, it just seems kind of sketchy. Yeah. I think 
if there hadn't been the bank robbery situation all those years later, yeah, it, I would be less suspicious of Lucinda. That's it, yeah. It just speaks to her character. Exactly, yeah. I mean, maybe she went from this great person to a bank robber in 14 years. I mean, that's a long time. People change. Yeah. But at the same time, they don't usually change that no. much. Now, in that same Reddit post I mentioned before, the poster identifies a John Doe who matches Robin's description and even posts a side-by-side comparison, which looks pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And now, Ashley, you saw them side-by-side. I did. What did you think about that? Um, the jawline's a little different, but, I mean, I could see the similarities. Yeah, it's, it's pretty yeah. close, I would say. The John Doe matches pretty well. The mm-hmm. body was a black male, age 37 to 47, who was five foot seven, which is the same height as Robin, mm-hmm. and died sometime between 1990 and 1999. Just for reference here, Robin was 37 years old. So everything about this John Doe lines up mm-hmm. with the details. That's pretty close. Except this John Doe was found in a chimney by a furnace installer in 1999 who was trying to clear a blockage. And this body was found in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a seven-hour drive from Owensboro, Kentucky. Wow. He also was not wearing the clothes that Robin was reported to be wearing. So those are a few Mm. minor differences. Yeah. But, I mean, someone could have taken him if he had been abducted. Right. They could have taken him to Ohio. It's not hard to change clothes. Right. They could make him change clothes, especially if they know people are going to be looking for him. Yeah. So the last I saw on there, the Redditor actually had submitted Robin as a possible match to this John Doe. Mm -hmm. So maybe something will come of that. I'm going to keep an eye on it and see if I see anything. But even if they don't match it to this John Doe, then I really hope that someday someone finds out what happened to this man. Yeah. Because it seems like no one really cares that he disappeared. And that just is heartbreaking. And there's so many cases like this out there where people disappear and it's like no one really even looks for them. So maybe we can at least get some of those stories out there and give some people a voice. And hopefully someday we find out what happened to Robin Lewis Slaughter. So. We're talking about skinwalkers today. And skinwalkers freak me out more than almost (laughs) any other paranormal being. I don't know what it is about them. They just give me nightmares. Because they're super creepy. They're so creepy. (laughs) I love it. They are from Navajo culture. The word for them is Yinalushia. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize for that just in case. (laughs) It means, by means of it, it goes on all fours, which is creepy enough on its own. It's the legend of skinwalkers isn't very well understood outside of Navajo culture because they have a big reluctance to talk about it with outsiders. I could see that. Yeah. Some say it's because it's to protect their culture and their legends and their stories. But some also say it's because it's dangerous to talk about skinwalkers. Like Voldemort. Yeah. Creatures who not, shall not be named. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so skinwalkers are witches who were actually once respected healers or spiritual gods who become evil. Okay. Uh, and they have the ability to turn into or possess or disguise themselves as animals or even another person. And they use their powers for evil. 
They're evil beings. So they used to be good, though. Well, they used to be powerful. They used to be people. They used to be people. Okay, I yeah. gotcha. They were they were just well respected. Said so they could be shamans, healers. They have these powers to work with. It says that they can either be male or female, but more often they're male. As we all know, during the day, skinwalkers can walk around just like the rest of us. They could be a bartender at your favorite restaurant or your child's teacher. Oh. Keep that in mind. <laughs> but at night, the skinwalker secretly transforms and they use their power to instill fear, inflict pain, and kill. Yikes. <laughs> This is why they're so creepy. Actually, no. There's other reasons they're so creepy. There's so many reasons why they're so creepy. Uh, they live on unexpired lives of their victims. They kill and eat people. Or their victims, it depends. It could be other animals, too. Okay, so they kill things to live longer. Yeah. And they have to continually kill, or they will die themselves. So, so the they're like vampires. Yeah. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. So, you're saying, hey, Ashley... How do I become a skinwalker? That's just what I was wondering, I knew actually. It. Well, I'm going to tell you. First of all, skinwalkers are not victims. They don't get bitten. They don't have their blood sucked. They have to want to become a skinwalker. This is completely voluntary. It's their choice. They're choosing to become something evil. And they choose to do the evil things it takes to become a skinwalker. That makes it so much worse. Yeah. The, they are... Evil, evil people. In order to become a skinwalker, they have to be initiated by a secret society that requires you to do, like, the worst thing ever, which is the killing and eating of a close family member, usually a sibling. Oh, my God. And by performing this act, they are just removing the last shred of humanity they have inside of them. Now, other traditions believe that skinwalkers are born of a benevolent medicine man who abuses indigenous magic for evil other traditions believe a man, woman, or child can become a skinwalker should they commit any kind of deep-seated taboo. It doesn't necessarily mean eating someone. But either way, just know that if you become a skinwalker, you can't undo it. So it's a pretty serious commitment here. Yeah. Now, what do skinwalkers do? What are their powers? They, obviously, they turn into the shapes of animals. They obtain and wear the skin of those animals, hence the name. Skinwalkers. Typically, they're seen in the form of coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, and bears. Because I'm assuming they're more likely to be found to skin. But they can take the shape of any animal. As long as they have the skin, as far as I understand. I wonder if they have to, like, carry all the skins around with them. <laughs> Just a big bag of animal skins. <laughs> yeah. What clothes do I want to wear today? Who do I want to be, an owl? Now, sometimes they can also wear animal skulls or antlers on their heads, which gives them more power. And they can choose their animal depending on the abilities they need for something. Speed, strength, endurance, stealth. And then they can transform again into something different if they're trying to escape. That's handy. Mm-hmm. Kind of sounds like I want to be one. Right. It's Except like, that I want to eat things. It's like a less <laughs> cool animorph. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Skinwalkers are also able to take possession of the bodies of human victims if a person locks eyes with them. So don't look at one. And after taking control, the skinwalker can make its victims do and say things that they wouldn't do. They can just take control of their body. They also have other powers, including reading others' minds, controlling their thoughts, behaviors. They can cause diseases and illnesses. 
they destroy property and even killing. It's also said that in addition to being able to shapeshift into animals, that they can also control the creatures, such as wolves and owls, to make them do their bidding. Some are able to call up the spirits of the dead and reanimate corpses to attack their enemies. Man, these guys are (laughs) serious. Being a skinwalker also comes with some pretty awesome physical abilities. They're able to run faster than a car. They have the ability to jump high cliffs. They're extremely fast, agile, impossible to catch. They leave tracks that are larger than any other animal. Although I don't know what that would do for anybody. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you come across some wolf prints and you're like, wow, those are giant. You can be like, oh, it's probably a skinwalker. Yeah, but if they're trying to stay secret. Oh, yeah. I don't know how that that benefits the skinwalker. (laughs) So now you're asking, Ashley... What if someone I know is a skinwalker? I have wondered that. <laughs> so one of the telltale signs of a skinwalker has been described as not looking quite human and not fully animal. Now, this is when they're transformed. Some encounters mention the animal that they're seeing are wearing tattered shirts or pants as if they changed while they were still clothed. <laughs> Their eyes are also very different than an animal's. When the light is shined on them, they turn red. And alternatively, when in human form, their eyes look more animal-like. Another pretty big sign is their smell. They smell awful. I read that uh, they smell like animals. Some I've heard even say wet dog, but it's mixed with the smell of rotting flesh. Ooh. So I figure you could probably know if one is around. Some also speak of finding animal-like footprints that eventually turn into human prints after a while. And also finding animal skins lying around where a skinwalker had been spotted. Those who have spoken of their encounters with skinwalkers describe a number of ways to know if they're nearby. They're typically seen as mischievous and poltergeist-like. So they make sounds around your home, such as knocking on windows, banging on walls, scraping noises on windows and roofs. On some occasions, they've even been seen peering through windows. Like a peeping Tom. That is the creepiest (laughs) part. Like... I cannot describe to you how terrified I am of looking out a window and seeing someone looking in at me. Any face, much less a skinwalker. Right. Oh. <laughs> uh, and more often, they're they're seen running alongside or appearing in front of vehicles as if they're trying to cause an accident. That That's one also, also creeps yeah. me out a <laughs> that lot. That one freaks me out. Now you're asking, Ashley, if I come up across a skinwalker, how do I kill it? Now... If you're chicken like me, or if you're just smart. We'll go with smart. (laughs) Trying to come up against one is not going to be your best bet. They're notoriously hard to kill and attempts are usually unsuccessful. But the scent of cedar can ward off the skinwalker, which is usually not a bad idea anyway because they smell. Right. So it's like an air freshener (laughs) and skinwalker repellent. Yeah. Now trying to kill one will often result in the skinwalker just trying to seek revenge. So... If you're going to kill him, you better kill him. Better make sure it's dead. Yep. Successfully killing a skinwalker typically requires the assistance of a powerful shaman who knows the spells and rituals that can turn the skinwalker's evil back on itself. Now, another alternative is to shoot the creature with bullets that have been dipped into white ash. Any white ash? I don't know. That's what I'm... I don't know if it's just white ash or if it's like... Like, do you have to burn something specific to get white ash? Maybe it's just white ash, but I've never just seen white ash. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. So good luck with that. And if you're going to shoot him, you need to shoot him in the neck or the head. 
Which makes it harder. Yeah. Now, another one that seems to be a little bit easier, if you can figure it out, is that you can kill a skinwalker by calling them by their true pre-skinwalker name. So, what their name was before. But how do you even find that out? I mean, I guess if it's someone you know. Maybe. But I would assume skinwalkers are like hundreds of years old. So, how are you going to figure out their name? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) Now, no skinwalker episode would be complete without some skinwalker stories. Which was my favorite part of researching. There there were so many different stories about skinwalkers. I have a few general short stories that I'll tell you about. But I have two anecdotal stories that I found on Reddit that are pretty creepy. I love a good creepy skinwalker story. Now, numerous people told stories of swift animals running alongside vehicles, matching the speed of the vehicle. uh, And then after a short period, they just run off into the wilderness. Sometimes they see them turning back into a man who will come and bang on the hood of their car. Another story tells of a man who was making repairs in an old ranch home when he began to hear loud laughter coming from the nearby sheep pens. Thinking he was alone, he went to investigate and found all the sheep but one huddled in one corner of the pen. However, there was a lone ram that was separated from the group that was standing upright and laughing in a very human manner. <laughs> After the man locks eyes with the ram, he sees that his eyes are not only that of an animal, but very human-like. The animal then casually walked away on all four legs. There is nothing <laughs> creepier to me than an animal standing on two legs. Yeah. That shouldn't stand on two legs. To. <laughs> There's some that say they've seen them running through the night, sometimes turning into a fiery ball, leaving streaks of color behind them. That sounds more like a ghost. Yeah. Like, but I don't know. Others see angry looking humanoid figures looking down on them from cliffs, mountains, and mesas. That's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, In the 1980s, one of the most notable events occurred when a family was driving through a Navajo reservation. As they slowed down to make a sharp curve, something jumped from the ditch. It was described as black, hairy, and wore a shirt and pants. A few days after this event, at their home in Flagstaff, Arizona, the family was awakened to the sounds of loud drumming and chanting. Outside their home were three dark forms of men, in quotes, outside their fence. However, these shadowy creatures were seemingly unable to climb the fence and soon left. I'm super glad I have a (laughs) fence about right now. Yep. Now, again, these two are going to be anecdotal. So I'm going to read them exactly how they were written. So if there's any offense taken to language, just be prepared. Now, this one was found on Reddit by... A username Neptune420, and it's titled Mine and My Father's Skinwalker Experience. My father owns a small delivery service that operates out of Farmington, New Mexico. We mostly deliver small packages out to the middle of nowhere that are too much of a hassle for the larger delivery companies to bother with. My dad is the only employee, and we have a few pickup trucks and a trailer. One day, we get a delivery out to Window Rock, Arizona, on the Navajo Reservation, about two hours from Farmington. My dad gets the call for the job while he's chilling with his Navajo friend, Travis, and his girlfriend. Travis mentions how he's got family in Window Rock and that he hasn't seen them in ages and suggests they go with him. I was about six or seven at the time and it was the summertime, so dad decides we'll go down together. He can do his delivery really quick and while Travis sees his family, we can go check out the Window Rock. Big rock face with a large hole in it that goes to the other side. Pretty cool. We had to convoy in separate trucks since my dad's was loaded down with freight. We decided to bring along some walkie-talkies so we could communicate with one another. We spend our time in Window Rock. Everything's generally uneventful, and we started heading home along the old highway when my dad and I in front and Travis and his girlfriend in their truck behind us. 
Honestly, don't remember most of the Window Rock trip, but this next part I can never forget. We're somewhere on the highway between Window Rock and Gallup, New Mexico. It had just rained earlier in the day and the road was kind of slick, so we were taking it pretty slow. On the left side of the highway, there's nothing but sandstone cliffs, and on the right, there's a huge field separated from the road by a small barbed wire fence. We crest the top of this hill, and down at the bottom of the hill, we see what appears to be a very large dog sitting back on its haunches in the middle of the road facing the cliffs. My dad calls over the radio, Hey, Trav, do you see that big-ass dog? Travis starts yelling back over the radio, That is not a dog. Speed up right now and hit it. (laughs) He sounds almost hysterical. He just keeps screaming, Hit it! JJ, you have to hit it. Please, please hit that fucking thing right now. So my dad starts to speed up, and as we get a bit closer, I can see it a little more clearly. It's covered in this brown, wiry, matted hair that appears to have dried blood all over it. It's still facing the cliffs, but the moment our headlights hit it, it turns and looks at us and has a face. I don't know how else to describe it other than a mix between a bear's and a human's face. It looks twisted and distorted and almost in pain. As we get closer to this thing, we start to realize it's actually fucking huge. Though it was still sitting on its haunches, it's about shoulder height with the hood of the truck. We get literally inches from hitting it when it lets out this scream that sounds like someone screaming as their lungs were filling with water. (sighs) And it leaps backwards towards the field, landing just on our side of the barbed wire fence. Then with another leap, it's gone from sight. Travis comes over the radio again. Holy shit, keep driving. We have to get out of here. We have to go faster. He kept repeating that last part. We have to get out of here and we have to go faster. Pretty soon, we're speeding like crazy and just as we start to come near the outskirts of Gallup, we get pulled over. Travis pulls his truck over with us. Naturally, this makes the cop, a Navajo man himself, very on edge and he immediately asks why Travis felt the need to pull over as well. Travis says, we just saw a skinwalker a few miles back and it's been following us. The officer immediately turns white, stammers something about a verbal warning, gets in his car and takes off. We do the same. We didn't see anything else that night, but when we got home, Travis refused to let us leave without taking some kind of Navajo totem thing that was supposed to keep it away. Oh, man, that (laughs) one gave me some chills. That, Okay, this one was also found on Reddit, and it's by username Vector Data, and it's titled My Fourth of July Experience. So I'm going to summarize the first two paragraphs because it's just a lot of information that we don't need. Uh, Basically, they wanted to go do something for the Fourth of July. They went to a friend's grandparents' farmhouse. There's five of them. The original poster, Neil, Elijah, JD, and Neil's sister, Katie. Now, Katie left to go get some snacks, and they were waiting for her to come back. And that's where we'll start. Something that already put me off was the ranch set considerably close to a forest. Neil even went the extra step to tell me that there's the occasional wolf that could be a hassle to deal with. Of course, I got nervous because I had nothing to defend myself with if one jumped over the fence. He handed me his pocket knife saying that there's a shotgun in the living room if, quote, something goes down. He mentioned that he was going to set up a game of risk for all of us to play while Katie was out as the drive to the closest market was well over a couple miles miles out. So Elijah and I sat poolside telling stories to each other about stupid stuff that happened while we were in college. During our talk, I was staring out into the forest line, paranoid about the aforementioned wolves that Neil teased me about. I saw something move. I couldn't tell since the porch lot behind me was making it harder to see any details, but the way it moved made my heart jump. Elijah could see my body language change as I leaned in to see what was there. He started to ask me what I saw, and I replied with a wolf on the tree line. He looked towards where I pointed, and he calmed down. That's just Katie, dude. I think she was just trying to scare us. He started calling her name, waving his arm and laughing, saying how she scared the hell out of me. 
Neil came out of the house, wondering what Elijah was screaming about. Then he saw his sister standing in the field. He started to laugh when Elijah told him what happened and how I was on the edge of my seat. J.D. came out of the house next, and Neil told him to help Katie with the bags, grab the fireworks. Katie, who was out in the field, started to wave back, but the wave definitely seemed out of place. It wasn't so much waving, but a sudden jerk, like if you were trying to pop your elbow. Elijah yelled for Katie to come back so we could start the party, but J.D. came back with a terrified look on his face. Katie's not back yet. I just called her. She's still on the road towards Walmart. Their laughing stopped, and Elijah's face faded, and his arm fell onto his lap with a thud. Everyone looked at the still-jerking figure in the field. Then she screamed. The scream was so loud it sounded like it may as well have been a couple of feet in front of us. All of us scrambled, running back into the house, slamming the door behind us. Neil shouted for all of us to lock the doors and grab the shotgun in the living room. I ran to grab a shotgun as it was the closest thing to us, while the other two ran to each of the doors leading outside. Quickly, I grabbed the shotgun, stuffed a couple shells into my pocket, running back into the kitchen where we came in from, and handed the gun to Neil. I pulled out the shells and set them on the counter, and he loaded one in. J.D. came back nearly covered in sweat, freaking out and shouting, what the fuck was that? Just as scared as he was, I looked at both of them, Elijah quickly joining us again. You don't think it was a skinwalker? I read the stories. I've seen them all over 4chan and in creepypastas. J.D. tried reassuring us. No, it can't be. That was Katie. I'm sure she's just trying to scare us. Cut the bullshit, J.D., Neil barked at him. That scream wasn't human. You already called her, and you told us what she was still doing. He turned back to the door, pushing the blind slightly to find that Katie was closer to us. It stood at the gates of the pool, illuminated by the light, and revealing to us something that didn't look much like Katie at all. The hair was a mess, and the clothes looked tattered. Her skin was bruised. The one thing that caught her eye the most was her face. The head was tilted, like it struggled to support the weight. The eyes were blank with emotion, and the jaw was agape. It raised an arm, jerking it like it did before in a mock wave. The jerking, however, started to get more violent, and the entire body started to shake uncontrollably. Neil quickly closed the curtains and backed off. He ordered us to sit back behind the counter. He set himself in the gap leading to the kitchen, gun aimed at the door. It was silent for what felt like an hour. The three of us continued to look at Neil, who was completely focused on the door. A massive, grotesque smell entered our noses, and all of us reacted appropriately. The horrid stench was like if you left groceries to ferment in a box in the summer heat with a couple of carcasses as garnish. It was definitely hard to breathe, tasting the smell in the back of your throat. Ugh, gross. Even with your nose pinched, it was so bad. J.D. actually ended up throwing up. Then, without any warning, the smell was gone. The hot air that was the smell went away and was easier to breathe. I was afraid to let go of my nose, but was rewarded with a breath of fresh air. Everyone took a couple of breaths to rid their lungs of the pungent smell that lingered beforehand. Neil asked us if we were okay, and we all replied, J.D. being an exception since he just puked. We heard what sounded like a whine. It sounded like a mix between a dog and a child about to cry. It wasn't coming from the porch door, but from the front where we came in from the car. All of us stood up, Neil moving forward while we stayed back. We knelt down by the stairs, still hearing this whining. It didn't hit me until we positioned ourselves, but it sounded like something was trying to talk to us for the first time, like an animal. In a raspy but still high-pitched voice, I could make out a very small portion of what it was trying to say. These are hot. <laughs> it kept repeating this until it started to sound more enunciated, more human. What the fuck was that? <laughs> it sounded like JD. Same accent, same speech pattern, same voice. 
J.D. started to shiver. His breath was getting shallow. He shouted back in a scared voice I'd never heard come from his mouth until now. Get out. Leave us alone. Get the fuck out. Leave us alone. Get out. The last words that were heard were in the same scream we heard when we saw it initially. It started to pound on the door, not like it was trying to force itself in, but like an impatient knock. It started to scream in the same pitch we heard when we initially saw it. Get out. Get out. Get out. It terrified all of us, the inhuman screams, the polite pounding on the door. I started crying. I thought this was it. Neil wasn't scared like us. Oh, he was right pissed. He stood up, storming towards the door, screaming. He swung open the door, pointing his shotgun at whatever was on the other side, pulling the trigger, filling all of our ears with the sound of the shotgun blast, and ringing to follow. Neil stood at the door, huffing. His body language was wanting to rip this thing apart. I stood up, looking past his arm, seeing nothing but a shell on the ground. I looked up past his shoulder, seeing nothing but the driveway and the road leading back to where we came from. He turned around, the adrenaline fading away, and a shaky voice coming from his mouth. We're not staying here. JD, call Katie and tell her to get ready to go back home when she comes back. The rest of the time, all of us were in the kitchen. The shotgun sat on the counter with several shells near the butt of the gun. None of us wanted to say anything. None of us wanted to look at each other. It was nothing but silence until Katie called us. Neil quickly wrote a note, leaving it on the gun as we left. All of us hopped into the car, silent. Katie noticed our behavior and constantly egged us to tell her what happened. She pouted and put music on her radio to cheer us up. The only thing I could hear was that blood-curdling scream telling us to get out. So those were terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I'm never going to a cabin. Yeah, this pretty much ruined me for ranches for mm-hmm. the rest of forever. <laughs> Driving through the woods. Driving it all. Yeah. <laughs> Ever leaving my house. Animals in general. <laughs> Gotta get rid of the cats now. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye.